Thanks for listening to this News Talk 106 to 108 podcast. To download other programs or for more information, go to newstalk.ie. Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. often a very solitary, lonely, suffering kind of situation. But for those around them, it's profoundly disruptive and extraordinarily disturbing and and difficult to cope with. So I think any sensible approach to madness has to be concerned to some degree with questions of meaning, has to be concerned with the social and the psychological, as well as with, with the biological. And so to that degree, I think where we are at the moment is in a, a mistaken kind of overly deterministic view that, that looks at one dimension of the problem to the exclusion of the others. Why do the roots of depression and schizophrenia still remain so elusive? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company. On this week's show, I've two fascinating and hugely creative men for you to meet. One a sociologist, the other a musician. Dr. Andrew Skull from the University of California charts the troubled history of madness. And Pulitzer Prize-winning composer David Lang talks to me about how the brain works on music and the books that keep him awake at night. This is a show about music and madness, compassion and suffering, care in the community and noise. But first... It was a brilliant cure, but we lost the patient. The encounter between madness and civilization. Dr. Andrew Skull is Professor of Sociology and Science Studies at the University of California in San Diego. He's the author of numerous books on medicine and healthcare, including Museums of Madness, Madness, a very short introduction, and Masters of Bedlam. He is also the former president of the Society for the Social History of Medicine. Well, Andrew's latest book, Madness and Civilization: The Cultural History of Insanity, looks at the troubled history of madness and how insanity has been the source of fascination for artists and writers who have captured madness in novels, plays, films, paintings, and music. Well, a few weeks ago, I got a chance to chat with Andrew. I asked him about the boundaries between sanity and insanity. Well, Susan, I think that's a very a large and difficult question, and it's one that people have wrestled with down through the centuries, right the way down to the present. And we've seen just two years ago the American Psychiatric Association revising for either the fifth or the seventh time, depending on how you count it, uh, how they go about trying to draw those lines. There was enormous controversy surrounding that publication. It was put off for more than two years because of all the infighting. And when it did appear, the current director of NIMH, the National Institute of Mental Health in in Washington, said that the document was unusable scientifically and they were no longer going to fund research based on those categories. And his predecessor said the uh, new diagnostic manual was, quote, a scientific nightmare. So 
psychiatrists themselves are still squabbling about how to draw those lines. I don't want to be taken to be suggesting that there is no difference and that we just make it up. But I think these things tend to imperceptibly blur into one another and actually drawing the line between eccentricity and something more serious, deciding what different varieties of badness exist out there, working out what to make of the milder conditions, whether they're real, whether they're malingering, whether they're people putting things on. You know, all of those questions are very, very hard to come to a definitive answer about, other than that we know down through history the where we've drawn those lines has fluctuated tremendously. Actually, drawing hard and fast lines has proved to be enormously, enormously difficult. If we cannot actually define or draw a boundary between sanity and insanity, do we have an adequate understanding of the root of madness? And how does our understanding change between cultures and different contexts? Yes, well, I think fundamentally there have been things that once upon a time fell within the domain of what was called madness or one of the cognate words that we were able to define successfully and in some cases treat. So the classic example of that would be in France uh, in the 1820s they began to observe something they called general paralysis of the insane, a condition that involved very outlandish psychiatric symptoms, but also profound neurological problems that eventually, as the name suggests, ended up in paralysis. And people speculated for a long time about whether that was the end state of all kinds of madness, if you'd lived long enough, or what on earth this was about. Only gradually, towards the end of the 19th century, did we begin to think or to suspect that what was going on was some sort of infection with syphilis. And finally, in the early 20th century, in 1913, scientists were able to detect the organism that causes syphilis in the brains of people with this condition. It was a further long time before there was an effective treatment, but luckily there now is. And that sort of disappeared from the psychiatric lexicon. But most of the major psychiatric disorders we look at, and even very many of the minor ones, are things whose etiology, whose origins, we're still profoundly ignorant of. We have some tantalizing hints sometimes. Uh, we think we're on the track, or some scientists think they're on the track of finding what's going on. But the reality of the matter is, is just as it's very difficult to draw hard and fast lines about where sanity ends and madness begins, it's equally difficult to say this is what causes madness. There, there are no PET scans or CAT scans or, or MRIs or other kinds of laboratory tests that allow us to peer into the mind and say, yes, this one is a mad mind and this is a sane one. So what we judge on the basis of are symptoms, people's self-reports, people's behavior. And in some ways, that means medical men and women these days looking at a condition like madness are acting a little bit like their professional brethren in the 18th century who were forced to rely on symptoms to decide about disease, you know. And progressing beyond that is proving enormously, enormously difficult and, of course, quite controversial because while at the moment biology is firmly in the saddle as far as most psychiatrists are concerned. There are others who suggest alternate 
origins of madness. And at times, psychiatrists themselves have embraced different interpretations. And that's just to talk about the medical universe. One of the things I think when you look at the history of madness over the long time periods is you see that while for the last couple of hundred years, the medical ideas about madness have been largely the ruling ones, in many cultures, other interpretations are equally salient and and often believed more widely because people who were enormously disturbed often look and act in ways that we find incomprehensible. It's a great temptation to resort to ideas of things like possession or divine punishment somehow that's rendered somebody less than human. And I think that's been a very persistent kind of trope. It's one of the things that perhaps explains why when we look at mad people, we see so often them treated in ways that strike us as not the sort of things we do to a fellow human being. Perhaps that's, that's where some of that has come from. But fundamentally, I think I'm not somebody who says there's been no progress at all over the years, but the progress we've made is quite limited, and the amount of our ignorance is still enormous in this territory. And so it's an area where still we paint very strange pictures about what's going on, and because it's so mysterious, it's something that attracts, for example, the attention of artists and the attention of creative writers, of novelists, of playwrights, and so forth. So it is, as a cultural phenomenon, an extraordinarily rich one, 